0: Isn't it something to be able to sing that song with meaning? It is well with my soul. And yet as we're able to confidently and with assurance to sing that song, it helps us appreciate what a blessing it is to be in Christ and to understand that all spiritual blessings are there. And yet how tragic and sad it is when we contemplate then those that are not in Christ, they can't sing with confidence, it's well with my soul. May you and I ever keep thoughts like that before us so that it motivates us to remain true, obedient, and faithful always to the commandments of the Word of God. Joy and Peace. That's the title I chose for the lesson this morning, and you might have noted as you looked at that lesson text, it's certainly one of the shortest lesson texts that one could have selected. In fact, In the Greek New Testament, it's the shortest verse in all of the New Testament. Rejoice evermore. I would invite you to consider with me this morning for the next few moments matters touching that of happiness on the one hand, joy, and peace. And to do that, of course, it brings before us a number of issues that face us on a day-to-day basis. But I trust that with the Word of God at our disposal and our approach thereto, we can wade through the murkiness and the difficulties that life presents and find the ultimate source of these things for which we seek so much. It is to that I would ask you to notice this slide. We all appreciate that in Galatians chapter 5, there is given to us first, beginning in verse 19, a rather powerful list of works of the flesh, things that are sinful and evil and things that will doom and down one's soul. But following that is a list often known as the fruit of the Spirit. Sweet things, wonderful things. In that list you noticed love, joy, peace. That's the first three of the list of nine. May I invite you to think about the second two I just listed. What is it that you and I can say about joy and peace. As we come to the bottom of that slide, I would submit to you that that will be our subject. But we're going to attempt to be practical. I'd like to know, wouldn't you? How can I be happy? And what is it that is the ultimate and genuine source of joy? This next slide that you'll see before you is, in many ways, some observations followed by, followed by, an assertion near the bottom of that slide. We each know very well that there seemingly surrounds us a world that is so often fraught with unhappiness, dissatisfaction, discontent, a world that often languishes in despair. It's a world that seemingly is insurmounted with problems. And with those problems often comes a negativity. So much so that the top of that slide brings us to note this. We are in a society in which so many have words of encouragement, words that are sources of positive nature, things that are meant to help us. There isn't anything wrong with self-help books to help. There isn't anything wrong with good advice for a healthy living. What we're asking today is far deeper and more profound than that. Those things are temporary at best. You'll notice on this slide... Despite all of these available matters, it still is so easily to be noted, don't you think? That for many, happiness is still nowhere in sight. Clearly, doesn't that indicate there's something more? You'll notice then that the Bible has much to say about rejoicing. Isn't it true that joy is the root word of the verb rejoice? Isn't it true that to rejoice is to exude joy? It is to involve oneself and to develop with thoroughness the attitude of joy. 286 times the word rejoicing, the word rejoice, or some other form of that verb is found in the Bible. 286 times of that number, as you can see, a rather substantial fraction is in the New Testament words of encouragement to Christians like you and me today, regardless of the circumstances in which the world may present itself, there is every incentive for a Christian to be a rejoicing person, a person filled with joy, a person who knows happiness, a person, as you and I will see today, that not only can appreciate the mental existence of such a thing, but genuinely has it in possession And so it is at the bottom of that slide. Look at just a sampling of verses in which God has some powerful things to say to you and me. I'll use the lesson text that Jeremy read just a moment ago. Rejoice evermore. Now admittedly, Paul wrote that again to the church in Thessalonica. And in the midst of a number of other features in which He brought before their minds the truth of the nature of God and the implications for life upon earth, He said, Rejoice evermore. Did you note the adverb that goes with the verb? It's one thing to rejoice, but you and I could easily ask when and how often. He said, Evermore. That original word means always or at all times. Isn't it true, then, that there's every reason in light of the things we find in the Word of God that you and I can have a sense, an appreciation, a capability of being in a state of rejoicing and to do so in a powerful and constant and consistent way. Look at the other verse in Philippians 4, verse 4. Here we read this statement, Rejoice in the Lord, and again, always I say rejoice. One of the things that so readily comes before you and me is this. The Philippian letter in some ways sets before the individuals of that day, that church in Philippi, a remarkable and positive consideration. I suppose it would be fair to say that if you were to take a poll of members of the Church of Christ, probably, probably, three-quarters of those upon polls would say their favorite New Testament book is Philippians. In it, there is such a sense of positive character and happiness and joy. And yet, may we never forget that the man that wrote it was in prison. The man that wrote it had already suffered so mightily due to the fact of persecution from those who didn't appreciate and love the Lord. And yet, to that church in Philippi, he could admonish them to rejoice. May I say that you and I today, though these centuries removed from that time we are, We have every reason to also rejoice. Let's proceed then for the next few moments. In a study of these things, and again, might we ask practically, in what way do they come and in what way does it not come? The confusion of the world brings us to begin in the following place. There are some things that do not bring lasting joy. Let's identify them. Let's at least make a listing, a choice list, if you please, of some of them. And if you'd like to hold your finger there in 1 Thessalonians 5, move back over to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. And let's take a moment and let an inspired writer, a penman if you please, present for us a listing. A listing of things that are not ultimate sources of joy. Verse number 1 begins like this, I said in mine heart, Go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, enjoy pleasure, and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad, and of mirth, what doeth it? Pause there with me for a moment. One of the sources, especially in our age and day of capability technologically, it still is true that some, it seems, seek for the meaning and happiness and joy to be found in life, in mirth and in pleasure. Does it make me laugh and does it make me happy? Let's face it, the entertainment business is a multi-billion dollar business every year. And there isn't anything wrong with wholesome entertainment. But is that the meaning of life? And can I find the ultimate source for the soul of myself or you in that activity? Let's let Solomon help us. The book of Ecclesiastes was written now, millennia ago. And yet, keep in mind that here was a gentleman who had at his disposal the capability, far more than you and me, I might confess, but the capability of pursuing entertainment, pleasure, and mirth in abundance. Back to verse 1. I said in mine heart, Solomon tried it. It's not that he had some mental theory as to whether or not it might work. He said, I tried it. I will prove thee with mirth, therefore enjoy pleasure. On the slide, I would ask you to consider. This, motive, this mentality is still a rather common one, isn't it? There are many, I suppose, this very morning, given the weather of today, especially who, no doubt, made an early trip to the lake perhaps the golf course, maybe some other expedition of otherwise entertainment and fun for the purpose of finding that to soothe the desires and pleasures of the life. You'll notice that this philosophy is by no means new. I've listed that word Epicureans. You and I read that in Acts 17 verse 18. When Paul came to the city of Athens, he encountered some philosophers of the Epicureans if we aren't careful, maybe we read right through that verse and never give it much thought. Who were these Epicureans and what did they teach? They taught the very thing we're now discussing. Live it up. You go through this life once, live it with all the gusto that you have, for therein is where you find the ultimate meaning of life. I put it in parentheses. According to them, the main aim of life is genuine true pleasure. Do whatever you need to to acquire it, and that will make you happy. We remember what Paul preached that day. He didn't tell them, you're right. We remember he brought them to appreciate that that was a city given over to superstitious character, idolatry if you please, and he said, let me tell you about this unknown God, the one that you superstitiously and in ignorance worship. Let me tell you about him and his demand." Notice, furthermore, I mentioned Solomon, the author of the book of Ecclesiastes. Keep in mind the privilege to which that man had access. Remember, he was the son of a king, King David. He thus was brought up with the advantage of richness. There were no doubt court jesters who could strive to make him laugh as much as he wanted. There were individuals, paid individuals, who worked for the government. Solomon had full access to them. He said, enjoy pleasure. Did you notice, though, how verse 1 ends? This also is vanity. May you and I not forget that. You'll notice among the things I would ask you to consider, laughter has its place. Christians should be happy people. But we know that's not the meaning of our life. It is not the ultimate end. And being of that which is you and me and that which brings us the finality of satisfaction for the soul. Proverbs 17:22 still reminds us, doesn't it, that a merry heart doeth good like a medicine. It's a fine thing to be happy. but you'll notice at the bottom, may we understand that Solomon said that's vanity and vexation of spirit. If genuine happiness, the source of rejoicing, is not there, where else is it? What else did Solomon try? Did you notice verse 3? Let's read that one. So far, he's tried pleasure and mirth, and that was not the answer. Verse 3, I sought in mine heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom. And to lay hold on folly till I might see what was that good for the sons of men which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. It's not difficult to hear Solomon say, Here's something else I tried. Verse 3 mentions wine. I've broadened that consideration by asking you to think of it this. What about these substances that individuals try to take into their body for the goal and purpose of exciting the pleasure and the thoughts that are so good to them. In the ancient era, they had access to wine, and certainly Solomon did in abundance. Today, you and I know that list is extensive. Some try cocaine and others heroin. In our modern day, with the legalization of marijuana, many like that one. But whether it be social drinking, these other substances injected into the body, oh, it's true, they make you feel good, I suppose, for a while. But what about when it wears off and is the meaning of life in it? Does it provide for you the satisfaction for the soul and the ultimate joy that God wishes His people to know? You could appreciate this list. The Bible warns us so directly that happiness isn't found, genuine happiness not in these things. I suppose the world has so often made its choices, providing things to ingest into the body and take in for the purpose of lifting us to the point of happiness and exquisiteness. Solomon tried it. What did he say about it? Let's look again at the text. Now this time, verse 11, is perhaps the powerful summary. It says, I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought and on the labor that I had labored to do, and behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. If only the human family could learn that lesson before investing and doing all the damage to themselves that those kinds of things bring. Solomon said, I tried it. Again, may we notice he was not speaking on a theoretical level. He said, I have practical experience. I've tried it and it did not work. Perhaps with that in mind, notice the bottom of that particular section on the slide. The New Testament, on the other hand of that, encourages that you and I be individuals that are given to clearness of mind and clarity and thought. And yet those things damage and in fact impair all of that. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 6, in fact, says that very thing. Perhaps in light of that, let's now ask, so if these didn't work, pleasure, mirth, and now substance, what else did you try, Solomon? What about accomplishment? Back to the text. Verse 4, I made me great works. I builded me houses, I planted me vineyards, I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kinds of fruits. I made me pools of water to water therewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. Three verses setting before us this reality. What else did Solomon try? I vested it on the matter of human accomplishment. Look what I've done. I have this wonderfully great house. It's dressed up beautifully and wonderfully. I've got pools of waters. I've planted orchards, and I have an exquisite array of trees. And yet, as you and I consider all of that, think of the parallels of our day. I've got a nice bank of cars. I have a sizable bank account. Look what I have been able to accomplish. And yet, in light of all those things, these human accomplishments, notice again, By their nature, there ain't anything wrong with them. But should I find in them the meaning of life? Should I find in it the source to which one can go for rejoicing? You'll notice as you continue on that slide, Jesus, in fact, Himself and others in the New Testament bring us to appreciate this. It's at the top of this next slide, and you and I notice it rather easily. And as much as Solomon attempted these things, isn't it true that this earth and its temporary character reminds us of some songs you and I sing so often? Earth holds no treasure, but perish with using. That's an old gospel song. Doesn't it remind us that our sojourn upon this place, what accomplishments we are blessed to be able to have, should be appreciated in the light of who makes them possible. And the privilege that's ours to simply be able to enjoy such and to not find in it the sustenance and meaning for rejoicing. One by one, as we've looked at all of these, what about the next one? What else did Solomon try? Well, it's not difficult to notice. What about power and nobility? Let's read further in Ecclesiastes chapter 2, beginning in verse 7. I got me servants and maidens, And had servants born in my house. Also I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. May I ask, can you imagine the power that was resident in Solomon? He was the king. All he had to do was give commandment and there were those to answer to his every beck and command servants and maidens he acquired, who in fact would address every supposed need that he thought he had. Not just needs, even his wants. Solomon said, I tried it. Now today you and I don't have the kind of money that Solomon had. We can't buy an array of servants and maintain them for long like he could. He had ultimate power and control. Every citizen of the kingdom answered to him. Today, is it possible that there are individuals motivated by the need to have control over others? You and I know that can happen. An individual finds the greatest element in happiness, it would seem, in the capability of telling someone else how to do it and when to do it. Now, it's true that God blesses us with talents, and if we find ourselves in a position to exhibit those talents that way, may we do it with humility, and may we do it understanding the place God has given us there, but not to find the meaning of our life in that position we're in. Solomon said again, I tried it. It didn't make me happy. It did not bring me a sense of fulfillment and joy and satisfaction. No wonder on that slide. You'll notice as you come to the bottom of it with me, this power of control. The king Solomon himself In the book of Proverbs stated so often the need to exhibit matters of humility in this. Isn't it true that perhaps you and I can recall our interest is not to please others if we're going to please God? In James 4 verse 4, aren't we told rather clearly that if you and I then seek to be those who please the world, we're not the servants of God. Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not, friendship with the world is enmity with God? I suppose in light of those things, one by one, we've listed a lot that didn't work. Let's continue our study by noting this. I suppose in our day there continues on and on to be this desire for possessions and wealth. I mentioned a moment ago what Solomon had access to. Remember, we're studying about rejoicing. And so far, Solomon has not been in a position to rejoice, though he had mirth, pleasure, substance, wealth, control. None of it answered the greatest need that he wished to know for rejoicing. Let's try possessions and wealth. I frankly confess that the devil has succeeded in convincing many that there is the meaning of life found in this. May we never forget Solomon, though, had it by way of experience. Look one more time. Verse number 8. I gathered me also silver and gold and the peculiar treasure of kings and of provinces. I gat me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. So I was great and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me. Solomon had silver and gold like none before him in Israel. As you and I read 2 Chronicles 15, it says, "...silver in Jerusalem was like rocks." Think how much silver was there. Solomon had control of all of it. Question, did it make him satisfied and happy today? Will that do it for you and me? If we're wise, we'll allow God to answer that already You'll notice on these verses, perhaps to our mind, races the text in Luke 12, verses 15 and following. There was a gentleman that approached Jesus and said, Talk to my brother and encourage him to divide the inheritance with me. Jesus, able to, of course, look deeply into his heart, was able to readily say, Take heed and beware of covetousness, for a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. That rich fool of Luke 12 had made a terrible mistake. You see, in the parable Jesus then proceeded to tell, rather than share anything, he chose to pull down his barns and build bigger ones. You and I need to learn, perhaps like he, or at least be reminded of the truth, that the meaning in life is not in the wealth and possessions. When the time comes of our death, what will those things get you? Can we take them with us? Can we send them ahead of us and let them wait for us on the other side? We know the answer is no. Surely in light of that. What about human wisdom? You'll notice in verse number 8, Solomon said, I tried wisdom. And may you and I remember that God especially granted and blessed him with a fantastic degree of wisdom. Because he prayed to God for it. In 1 Kings 3, When God appeared to him and said, Ask whatever you want and I'll give it to you, he asked for a wise and an understanding heart. Maybe in light of that, you and I can appreciate that that degree of wisdom helps us perhaps consider the following. When I think wisdom, don't we all think perhaps about the degree of education and knowledge? Education is a blessed thing. It allows us opportunities in life we otherwise couldn't have. But the meaning of life is not in that. Much study, we're told, in the Word of God is a weariness of the flesh. Ecclesiastes 12, verses 12 and following. We're told, are we not, that if we base our existence and our meaning upon simply this matter of secular knowledge, look at some of those verses. We miss completely the wisdom available from the Word of God maybe in light of having said all these things, why don't we then come to this? So far, we've invested our time in looking at what is not a cause for rejoicing. Let's ask this, what is a cause for rejoicing? Thankfully, we have the Word of God to provide us the answer. We aren't left to meander through life and to try and perhaps wonder or figure it out. One by one, would you look at some of these verses with me? This same book of Ecclesiastes put it like this. Let us hear the conclusion of the whole matter. Fear God and keep His commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Isn't it true then that in light of our sojourn upon this planet, while we're here in the flesh, we appreciate so readily and so well that these other matters, though blessing on occasion they may be, the meaning of life and the rejoicing therein is found in fearing God and keeping His commandments. It will lead to a satisfaction for the soul, a contentment and a peace that isn't found elsewhere. No wonder you notice in verses like these, Matthew 7, verses 24 and following, Jesus spoke about two individuals, one who was wise and one who was a fool. We each remember that the wise was one who built on the rock. The fool was the one who built on the sand. And he said that that one that was wise hears the word of God and keeps it. Now, are you wise? Am I wise? These other things, though the world may proclaim them as satisfaction, the word of God says no. Not only that, look at the next thing. In Jeremiah 10 verse 23, Oh, Lord, I know that the way of man is not in himself. It is not in man that walketh to direct his steps. Oh, what wisdom and profound wisdom at that is contained in a passage like that one. It's echoed rather powerfully in Proverbs 20, 24. The goings of man are in the hand of the Lord. I would submit to you that one by one, as we then now appreciate rejoicing evermore, we're ready to look that the Bible. It's what shares with us what is the whole of man. Your whole duty, your whole commission, your whole pursuit, and mine, if we're wise, should surround a knowledge and an obedience to what's contained in this book. We each know that the world has chosen, in so many cases, those previous things we listed. And look at what a mess the world is in. Look at what confusion reigns supreme. Look at how misguided so often the ways are. We now know why. Because the thing that has the answer has been neglected. The book that has the solution has been ignored. No wonder you begin to see what's at the bottom. Look now at the rejoicing that the servants of God have always been able to appreciate. In Psalm 68, verse number 3, Psalm 105, verse number 1. Contemplate on those situations, what David faced, and yet the satisfaction of joy that was his. What about that text in Isaiah 57, verses 20 and 21? I would hope that you and I could etch the sentiment of that pair of passages in our mind, for it considers us and it brings to us this thought. Consider with me the wicked for a moment. The wicked. Those who are not servants to the Lord, whatever may be the situation of the wickedness in their life, as they relish in it, as they proceed in it, here's what the sacred writer had to say. The wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest. Whose waters cast up mire and dirt, there is no peace, saith my God, to the wicked." If there's an individual in this audience currently in a wicked state of life, an individual who's chosen a pathway that's filled with wickedness, listen, my friend, there is no peace in the path you're pursuing. Oh, there may be momentary pleasure, but as we've just learned, that's vanity and vexation of spirit. There is no peace in the final analysis in what you're doing before God. And if you continue and maintain in that, you're going to reach the end of your way, and then, and then, where will you then be? The pleasure, the mirth, the other features that we've studied today, why not make the choice now to set aside those evil pursuits and follow the way of truth? The whole of man is to fear God and keep his commandments. As you come near the bottom of that slide, The Christian life is one that is full of this opportunity for motivation, in happiness, and in joy. Because you and I have had our sins washed away by the blood of the Lamb. We'll not suffer the guilt of those sins because they've been forgiven. What's more, we have standing at our side the powerful presence of the Messiah, the Son of God, with whom we clasp our hand and walk through this life with confidence. Because even as the door of death approaches, we shall be able to pass through with assurance, knowing that the greatness of what's beyond has been promised to those that are faithful members of the body of Christ. What about you and me then this morning? Do you know what peace is? Do you appreciate that joy that Paul spoke of? Rejoice evermore. Are you able to do that? I trust that in this audience so many of us are able to and shall be able to continue to do it. But if you find yourself in a life that seems empty, a life that seems hollow, a life that seems without the necessary matters of joy and sustenance, we've learned what the issue is. The Lord is absent. We did learn there in Philippians 4, 4, rejoice in the Lord. Today, if you're not able to do that, we can confidently say it's because with the Lord absent, there's those other things present. Make the change, if you would. Jesus died on the cross to provide for you a means whereby you could know the great joy that He has in store for His faithful children. If we could be of assistance to you today, we appreciate that plan of salvation reads as follows. Believe in Jesus as the Son of God. Repent of your sins. Confess His great name as the Son of God and be baptized. If we could assist you in that way today, what a joyous day it'd be. And may I submit to you, on the moment that you come out of that watery grave of baptism, you will feel a degree of contentment, peace, and joy that you had never have felt before. And of course, that'll be able to continue all through life upon your faithful obedience. If you have become a Christian, though, but you have not remained faithful to that calling, why not come back to that first love? After all, in so doing, you can be reinstated to a place of faithfulness. You need to confess those sins. You need to repent of them and invite the prayers of faithful brethren, just like Simon did in Acts chapter 8. Today, if we could help you in any of these ways, why not come at this very moment while together we stand and sing?